Moms are great. Mother's Day is a nightmare. With the world beginning to reopen, this may be our busiest Mother's Day yet. Yelp for Restaurants is here to help you execute a flawless service. Contactless table management, reservation management, and digital waitlisting tools ensure your diners don't have to wait around in long lines in an era of social distancing. Empower your guests to add themselves to your digital waitlist before they even leave home. Provide accurate wait times and automatically notify them right before their table is ready. Let's get back to business better than ever. Listeners of this podcast get three months of free access to waitlist and $300 of free monthly advertising credits. Visit restaurants.yelp.com forward slash Mother's Day to learn more. Now here we go. I'm really excited about this moment for change for our industry. I think that people are paying attention. The consumers now are more in tune with the difficulties of the restaurant business. Welcome to Full Comp, a show offering insight into the hospitality industry, featuring restaurateurs, thought leaders, and innovators, served up on the house. We idolize trailblazers, those heroes with enough courage to do something truly original. It's easy to romanticize their struggles or attribute superhuman qualities that make them seem different than us, but they're not. Mary Sue Milliken is just a person like you and me, but through patience, grit, and the belief in a better future, she has overcome overwhelming odds to become a celebrity chef, successful restaurateur, published author, television personality, wife, and mother. Today, Mary Sue shares her path from culinary student to industry leader and the lessons she's learned along the way. We were extremely passionate young cooks who wanted to learn to be chefs. And in 78, we'd both already finished chef school. Susan went to the Culinary Institute in New York. I went to a trade school on the south side of Chicago. And we met in a kitchen at what we both kind of felt was the finest restaurant in Chicago called La Paroquet. I was the first woman to work there. And she came in about six weeks later. And I think the owner was like, wow, that first girl who had to fight her way into the kitchen, (laughs) she works circles around the boys and she's half the price. I think I'll take another one. Mm -hmm. Right. But we were like literally just so excited to have met each other. Like we had a soulmate in the kitchen and somebody who had the same work ethic. We're both Midwestern, really hardworking and someone who had the same passion about food. Like everything we were learning was so exciting and we would explore things together. And that was 78 was the first year we worked together for a whole year. And it was just by the end of the year, I would pick her up on Lakeshore Drive on my bicycle, and she would sit on the handlebars and we'd go to work together. (laughs) (laughs) It's incredible. You both have this like intrinsic enthusiasm. And I'm wondering, was that always there? And did that function as a bonding agent? That's a great question, because I think I was very shy, literally like a shy kid in high school. But Susan was sort of the cheerleading captain. and But over the years, she has brought that part of my personality out. We've been partners 40 years. Let's flash forward a little bit, because after I had spent three years in the industry, there was no way I was prepared to open my own restaurant. 
And then you think about the era that you were living in and it's like 1981, you're two women and you're like, let's open a cafe together. And you open the city cafe and it doesn't resonate like conceptually or practically. And yet you did it and it worked out well. It's true. Well, the industry's changed a lot. Let me just say, opening a restaurant today compared to in 1981 is like night and day. In those days, it was more about just like a neighborhood place to serve people. You didn't have a PR company giving you a launch. You you didn't even train your staff ahead of time. You just opened the doors and sort of trained on the fly. That was just how things were done. The focus on restaurants wasn't so intense as it is now. So back then, after Chicago, we lived in France separately and worked in three-star restaurants and came back with like, so I think those three years of working after chef school, working in really specific kinds of restaurants where we learned what we felt we really needed to learn, I think that kind of gave us the, we were ready to be our own bosses on as small a scale as we had to be in order to not have to answer to anybody and just create our own path. So I think what happened was Susan had met these women who already owned this cafe, but the cafe was overwhelming for them and they didn't really want to manage it. So Susan kind of slowly worked her way in and then she called me and said, you got to move here and we're going to take this over. It didn't even have a stove. It had two hot plates and a hibachi in the alley. So basically... (laughs) We were cooking after two years of grueling chef school working at night and then all kinds of apprenticeships in really fancy, wonderful restaurants, learning, 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 taking abuse here and there. But basically after that, we just kind of ditched it all to cook on some hot plates (laughs) in order to be in charge of our own destiny. And we ended up putting a stove in and a hood system like it was one little four burner stove. That was it in a 900 square foot space. And that's sort of how we launched the City Cafe. And within about a year, we had a write-up in Gourmet Magazine and Ruth Reichel came in and wrote us up a big like four-page spread in kind of a West Coast magazine, lifestyle kind of magazine. So things were already starting to really, the interest in food and in chefs was starting to really peak. And in those early days, when I think about the success or failure of a restaurant, it's going to come down to the quality of the food and beverage, execution, things like that. But what will tank a business, regardless of industry, is the quality of the partnership. And after 40 years together, I'm wondering, the dynamics had to be set pretty early as far as what was in your wheelhouse, what was in hers. What were those early dynamics like? Well, that's so interesting because... Partnerships are difficult. Marriages are hard. It's not that different. I think the more important thing to look at is not what was set in stone early or what was acknowledged early on, because what has kept our partnership alive, I believe, is the ability to change. So to constantly course correct and change and kind of allow each other to change. I mean, in the beginning, she would do the produce order and I would check it and change it (laughs) because I would like be like, no, we don't need five bunches of parsley. We only need three and we'll get fresh later. You know, we would literally do the exact same work on top of each other. And it's been a 
very long sort of separation and learning to trust each other and learning what our strengths really are. I don't think I knew that I could say today that what I bring to the partnership is this sort of overarching view of the big picture and the future, because that's what I love. And Susan is down in the details of the everyday, in the weeds, slogging it out, loving that part of it. I think I didn't know that in the beginning at all. And how did you guys suss out the front of house operations with both of you having expertise in back of house? Well, after City Cafe, where we had a few servers who were really lovely, but they did admit that on their days off, they'd like to do heroin. (laughs) (laughs) So we weren't great at sussing out the front of the house in the beginning. (laughs) Of course, that was such a tiny restaurant that One of us could walk out of the kitchen and be in the dining room in a second. But then when we opened our city restaurant, which was sort of the grown-up version with like a real kitchen and all the bells and whistles, we put a tandoori oven in there. It was just like a dream come true. We hired Susan's ex-husband's sister, who had never worked in a restaurant before, to be the general manager. (laughs) That was in 1985. But she did a great job. I think we have learned over the years to find people with good operation skills. We've had some of our people at the top level have been partners and they've really stepped in and shared a lot of the profits and a lot of the growth. And then they've also stepped out to go open their own places again. So I think we don't really consider the front of the house and the back of the house that different. I think we both really flow between it. Susan especially loves to go out and chat to guests and everything, whereas I'm less inclined to... I don't like to have my own dinner interrupted, so I don't want to walk up to someone's table. (laughs) But yeah, I think we've just really tried to attract and keep really talented people. I know you and Julia Child were close, or at least in the same orbit, and I'm curious to know... Whether it was her or other people, how has mentorship played a role in your career? Oh, gosh. She was a great mentor and really a champion for young women in the industry and such a great role model. Working with her was just a huge learning experience for me. Just watching her, watching how she would interact with other people was really a way for me to see how someone, you know, I didn't expect to be a celebrity chef and I didn't really prepare myself for that. That wasn't part of like why I got into it. It didn't have anything to do with what I was going after. It sort of followed our careers and watching how Julia would interact with her fans was a great learning experience for me. And it taught me exactly how I'd like to be also. Like we'd have cookbook signings side by side. And she'd have a line like around the block and we'd have five people. (laughs) (laughs) But she would talk to each person in the line. And the other thing I learned from her is the insatiable curiosity about everything. And that just is sort of such a dynamic way to go through life, I think. Yeah. And I understand that the plan wasn't to become a celebrity chef, but you were also on TV before Emerald. (laughs) Really, I found this thing. You were pitching the merits of vegetarian food back in 1993. Right. On the great chefs of the West. (laughs) Yeah. You were early in everything. Like just a trailblazer, truly. In doing the research, I was just mind blown again and again and again. 
And I just wonder, sure, Julia Child had set forth some semblance of an example, but you were actively running restaurants at the same time. And I'm wondering how much of this was maybe not a plan, but a vision that you had in your mind that was executed and how much of it was being opportunistic and seeing the opportunities that are out there. I think I was definitely opportunistic. We were approached to write a cookbook by a cookbook agent and I really wanted to do it. Susan was kind of lukewarm and then we made that happen. And then we wrote another one and then I was absolutely incensed. I had a newborn baby in the early 1990, and I had learned about a spray they were putting on apples called ALAR, and Meryl Streep came out against it. And I felt like, as this new mom, like, how could you put stuff on apples that's going to hurt us? Kids love apples. (laughs) You know, this is just not right. And I called the National Public Radio affiliate here in LA at KCRW, the CEO, and I said, I want to go on the radio and I want to tell people about the things in their food system that are dangerous. And she just like chuckled. She was like, that does not sound like a good radio show. (laughs) But how would you and Susan like to come on and do a one hour show every Saturday about good food? It was called Good Food. And she said, you could weave in a little bit of your message here and there, but it has to be like a celebrating food. Of course, she was absolutely right. And so we, for five years, did our own radio show. So things happen like that, just serendipity. Then the Food Network reached out and wanted to talk about doing a TV show called Two Girl Chefs from the West or some horrible name like that. And we came back with, well, how about cooking with two hot tamales? (laughs) (laughs) And then that happened. We did almost 300 shows and wrote a couple more cookbooks. And I feel like it's not as much of a plan. And I think had I planned things, I might not have even been open to the things that came along. Like I remember when City Restaurant closed, it was like literally, it was 94, I think. And it felt like I was cutting off an arm. It was so painful emotionally. It was like our baby, like the best thing we'd ever created. And I thought no one would know who I was. And it was felt like the biggest failure ever. And as that door was closing, the radio show door was opening. And then the Food Network heard about the radio show. So that door was opening. In retrospect, I see that it was no big deal at all. But it felt like so monumental to me, like the worst thing that ever could have happened to me. And it turned out to be one of the best. Working in the restaurant industry, there's always been plenty to worry about. And over the last year, cleanliness has been front and center in our minds and in the minds of our guests. Your world-class team and world-class patrons deserve world-class protection. Microband 24 Professional kills 99% of viruses and bacteria. It doesn't just sanitize and stop. It keeps killing bacteria for 24 hours, even when the surfaces in your restaurant are touched multiple times. And the EPA has approved Microband 24 Sanitizing Spray is effective at killing the virus that causes COVID-19. So you can achieve your most confident clean, touch after touch. And I think it totally speaks to the moment that we find ourselves in now. When I closed Prue and Proper back in March, 
obviously I was devastated. Like we all are. And I represent hundreds, if not thousands of restaurateurs that found themselves in the same exact position, struggling for meaning in life and what's next and what's now and how am I going to support my family. But you've helmed several successful restaurant openings and some restaurant closings. And I'm wondering, what have you learned over the years about the lifespan of a restaurant? And how do you put it in perspective? Well, I remember back at City Restaurant, I think somebody had offered to buy the restaurant from us and for a good chunk of change. And we were like, no, absolutely not. And then someone said, well, you know, the average restaurant lifespan is about seven years. And if you make it to seven years, you're doing really well. And I thought that was, I just scoffed at it. Of course, then by the time 94 came along, it had been riots and earthquakes and fires and directors guild strikes and things that had all just sort of piled on to create a financial model there that was definitely not working. And we were lucky to get out and find someone to buy it and be able to pay our bills. And I remember thinking, oh, I wish at seven years I had done what that guy told me to do. But then I guess that hasn't proved true in my other restaurants. We've been downtown for 22 years. We had Santa Monica for 28 years. And by the time we left, the restaurant itself was beat to shit. (laughs) And the landlord (laughs) wanted a lot more rent. And we were like, nah, that's not going to work. We've been in Vegas and Mandalay Bay for 21 years. So I guess we're the kind of operators that just want to be there for the long haul. And we'll try. And we'd probably try harder than we should. We go an extra two years, like we opened at the forum shops in Vegas and two years in, we should have really looked at the message was on the P&L, like close now. And we waited two more years. So four years and the message was amplified. (laughs) You should have closed, you should have closed. But we're just sort of persistent and really, we don't like to fail. (laughs) So I think though that Closing restaurants is actually such a good thing to, you learn so much. It's expensive and it's heartbreaking and it hurts, but it actually really, you learn a lot when you look at the reasons why. Absolutely. Between you and Susan, you sit on about half a dozen nonprofit boards and you've raised millions of dollars for charity. Advocacy has played a huge role in your life. What are some of the projects and causes that you're most proud of? Oh my gosh. Well, I've been on the board of Share Our Strength and No Kid Hungry, and I still remain so passionate about that. I grew up sort of poverty adjacent. (laughs) My single mom and I, we didn't really ever get down into poverty, but we were constantly looking over the cliff and worrying about it. So when I think about children here in this country with this abundance who are going to bed hungry, who don't have the nutrition that they need to feed their brains to grow and thrive. It's criminal. So I've been very proud of the work we've done there. I've seen the charity grow just like exponentially. And I've been on three-day, 300-mile bike rides four years in a row to raise funds for it and brought in 250 chefs, which I'm very proud of that too, because chefs have always had this sort of since Tony Bourdain, this sort of sexy, like alcoholic, pork fat, (laughs) swilling kind of rep, when in fact, we need to take care of our bodies and our minds. And we really need mental health probably more than 
a lot of other professions. And so it was great to bring a lot of chefs in on the bike riding because I think it's a thing that just is such a positive sort of, and it fits in well with chef culture. It's something you can really get obsessed with. And so I would say that I'm very, very proud of that. Ever since that apple, the preserve or the poisoned apple kind of situation, the pesticide, I've been really very vocal whenever I can about the food system and trying to find ways to make sure our food's good for us, for one, but also that it's good for the planet. So I get very excited about working globally, really, with a bunch of chefs in the Chef's Manifesto all around the world, around promoting decisions about the food system that actually support the SDGs, the Sustainable Development Goals, which for me are like a kind of a guiding North Star that I love that 50 some countries got together 10 years ago and they came up with these 17 goals that they all committed to making happen. And then I feel like the least I could do to give back for the great fortune I've had is to really use my platform to get consumers and other chefs and purveyors excited about being part of the solution to reach those SDGs. Something you brought up that I think is worth unpacking is this idea of health and balance, because you don't really see a whole lot of that. I mean, if a restaurant gets beat to shit after 20 years, what does it do to a restaurant professional? You know what I mean? Truly. But you're effervescent and you're just so light and you do have a family and a successful marriage and offspring and all of these things. And you've done so well with all of it. Talk to me about how you've managed being an author and a media personality. And for those listening that are unaware, you cook in your restaurant. Like you didn't leave it behind to go do something else. So you do all of it. And I'm wondering how you make that work. Well, I come from German heritage, so I'm very organized (laughs) and I like to have a schedule. And once I put it on my calendar, if it's date night on Wednesday night, we go on date night and we've been doing that for 35 years. (laughs) And I think having children helped me a lot because before the kids, there were a good 15 years of workaholic behavior, no doubt. And that was a big part of sort of my 20s and early 30s, creating the foundation for my company. But after having kids, it really gave me the incentive to really just take better care of my mental health and of my schedule. I was able to prioritize my personal life above my professional life for the first time. And you know what's interesting? My professional life hasn't suffered at all. People think, oh, I have to put it all 150% in or I'm never going to get as far as I want to go. And that just is not true. That's just a thing that people make up in their heads. And I did it too. But the truth is, I think you're a better boss. You're a better cook. You're a better advocate and activist. You're better at everything you do if your life is balanced. Let's talk about that a little more because Lord knows, as an industry, we lost so much over the last year. Some of it, I'm willing to give away. The lack of balance, the unhealthy lifestyle, and something that I've been advocating for in my own life and everyone else's as we roll out of this is that we don't forget the lessons we learned and the things that we actually gained during the pandemic. And I'm wondering, 
if we were to start fresh, how would you like to see the industry at large and the people in it evolve? I have thought about this so much because this also comes on the heels. The pandemic came on the heels of the Me Too movement. And then at the height of last summer, the Black Lives Matter movement was amplified in a huge way. And the pandemic itself exposed some really ugly underbelly kind of realities of the food industry and especially of the restaurant industry. And so working with the Independent Restaurant Coalition, I'm on their Zoom calls every Wednesday and Mondays and with Tom Colicchio and Sam Cass and Erica Palmer and all these amazing chefs from all over, young, vibrant, Ashley Christensen and amazing people. I'm really excited about this moment for change for our industry. I think that it's now people are paying attention. Consumers have gone without restaurants and it has hurt. They have really suffered not having restaurants to go to. The loneliness, the lack of community, the kind of, they don't know how to cook, whatever. (laughs) You've kind of put it all together. And I think the consumers now are more in tune with the difficulties of the restaurant business, the slim margins, the way that our financial model has been broken for decades. We don't make enough money to be able to pay for full health insurance or paid time off or for our staff. And then that's true of even farm workers. So all the way from farm to fork, we're not charging enough for our food to take care of our industry and the people in a sustainable way. So I don't know if the consumer is going to be willing to pay double what they've always paid. I kind of doubt it. But I think that we now might be able to have a little louder voice in the government, maybe the taxes for restaurants, which are the social fabric that weave our communities together. We can find a way to kind of holistically value restaurants in a different way so that we have what we need to pay people what they deserve. I couldn't agree with you more. It's an industry podcast. And at the end of every episode, I like to give the guests an opportunity to speak directly to the audience. Do you have any advice or words of encouragement you'd like to offer? Well, I'm a glass half full kind of girl. And I feel like now is a very important time for change. It's been a terribly hard year in every way and sad and harrowing and and just stressful beyond belief and frustrating working with the government on these loans and now the grant system, which all I'm so appreciative of. It's the bureaucratic red tape I could have used less of. But I would encourage the audience to just take a deep breath and think about how we can come back from this in a much better way and pave a path that's more sustainable for all those who are coming behind us. We have a lot of knowledge as a group of all the experience we've had over these last couple decades. And now we've had this pause that I'm going to look at it as a gift (laughs) just because that helps me get through. And then how are we going to make it better on the other side? That's Mary Sue Milliken. For more on The Chef, go to bordergrill.com. If you want to tell us your story, hear previous episodes, or check out our other content, go to restaurants.yelp.com forward slash full comp. Thank you so much for listening to the show. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. 
While you're there, please leave us a review. A special thanks to Yelp for helping us spread the word to the whole hospitality community. I'm Josh Kopel. You've been listening to Full Comp.